Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And I first want to thank the many people who have uh, commented on my announcement last week that I would be ending my personal presentation of new podcasts next March. It would be an understatement for me to say how very much your wonderful comments and suggestions have meant to me. And after we listen to today's talk by Terrence McKenna, I'll be back to give you some of the initial details of what I'm thinking of as Psychedelic Salon 2.0, which will begin uh, next March, if not before. From the comments that I've received so far, uh, after I've posted some of my ideas on the forums, I think that there's going to be a lot of excitement about this next phase of uh, podcasts from the salon. To be honest, uh, one of the things that I was afraid of after I announced that I was coming to the end of the time that I personally would be editing and presenting these uh, various talks and interviews was that perhaps interest would drop off to the point where there would be no longer enough donations to keep the salon online and producing new programs, uh, which is what I'll be talking about after we first listen to today's Terrence McKenna lecture. But my fears appear to be completely unfounded because the following saloners didn't let any announcement uh, deter them and they nonetheless went ahead and made donations to help with the ongoing, uh, for years to come I hope, work of these podcasts. And these wonderful and to me inspiring people are Alec F., Quigsta LLC, Jordan E., Daryl C., and John P., your continuing support for this project has uh, truly warmed the cockles of my heart, and I will certainly not forget you. But before I get to the details about the Psychedelic Salon 2.0, we first are going to get to listen to some new material from Terrence McKenna. Today, and for the next few weeks, I'll be playing some recordings that were made in early August of 1997 at Esalen, where Terrence led a workshop that was titled our cyber-spiritual future. As far as I know, uh, none of this material has yet to find its way online, uh, at least under that title. The tapes that came to me with the talks from this workshop were not professionally produced, and so every once in a while you'll hear a little glitch of some kind. And that isn't me editing anything out, it's just the way the recording came to me. One of the things that you may want to keep in mind as you listen to this talk today is that it was given almost nine years after the last series of McKenna Talks that we listened to, and a lot had happened in the meantime, including the reunification of Germany, the uh, beginning of the Human Genome Project, the launch of the Hubble Space Telescope, Nelson Mandela was freed, and uh, Tim Berners-Lee created the first web server to begin the foundation for the World Wide Web. And <laughs> all that happened only the first year after the last McKenna talk that I posted. So a lot of things had changed during the interval between these two workshops. But as you'll hear in a moment, uh, much was still the same uh, as it remains yet today. Now in about 20 minutes, you're going to hear Terrence talking about the ideas of Marshall McLuhan and uh, say that he didn't think that democracy could survive except within the world of print. And in the past, we've heard Terrence speak about the fact that we've been living inside a print culture. 
Now, I'm telling you about this now so that when you get to that part, you uh, may want to pause your MP3 player for a moment and give some thought to the possibility of truth in what Terence says about only within a print culture can the idea of democracy and the nation-state be sustained. And then consider the fact that we now seem to be well beyond the point of no return when it comes to leaving the culture of print for a more directly interconnected digital culture. I'm not sure that any of this is of any real importance right now, but I suspect that you might be able to see some patterns evolving around you that, uh, well, have the potential to make seismic changes in our lives. Or at least these things are fun to talk about late at night, uh, especially with a few doobies to pass around. So now let's join Terrence and about 25 others for this 1997 workshop. I sound like I give a lot of advice <laughs> for, for a guy who claims the light touch. <laughs> well, you know, one of the weird things about magnetic tape is any opinion you ever express will be marketed forever, no matter how many times you change your mind. So, you know causes I loathe and now denounce are furiously making money because somewhere else in hyperspace I'm furiously flogging and pushing. Uh, <laughs> one more reason why you should be critical of everything you hear, you know. You don't know whether it's fresh or uh, rehash or what it is. But we'll probably get around to monotony, monogamy, and in this weekend, more neophony. But it all, all these otony things eventually get worked through. So, good. Well, that was very exciting. Because somewhere around Nicholas, I began to realize that we were headed for a, uh, a perfect no-hitter. Nobody said that they were a psychotherapist of any sort. Bolt the doors and let the record show that for the first time in 40 years, a group was able to be held at Esalen that uh, was not dominated by psychotherapists. Of course, they're the 35 people who are not here <laughs> this weekend. But that's fine. Uh, it's great that, I mean, it almost is like an argument for the morphogenetic field because my interests are evolving and changing and it feels like, you know, I'm a bird in a flock and the whole thing is, is slightly uh, shifting Direction. Did anybody not get who needs one of these seed source? I'll just move this on around. Uh, so many people in the arts and in media, and to have three people even claim to be writers uh, is uh, a, a, an astonishing record. So it must be you know, the stars are in a slightly different position or, or something. Uh, I, I actually thought coming over here this evening that probably most people coming to this workshop would have been ultimately better served if they stayed home and read Mason Dixon, uh, Tom Pynchon's new novel. 
but then I thought, you know, saying that to any group I've ever had would just provoke baffled bewilderment. Uh, but it uh, seems like something you might be able to hear. So why didn't you stay home and read Mason Dixon? We, we've been reading it here uh, and discussing it as much as my staff groups would tolerate. And, uh, you know, it's not a small thing in a culture to be able to bring forth great literature. And uh, I don't think there's been any great literature on the American scene for uh, a long time. I'm not fond of those East Coast tormented realists, you know, the John Cheevers and Sal Bellows of this world. I consider that stuff hideously second rate. Tom Pynchon is a great writer. Problem is, he usually scares the shit out of your moral uh, self because his vision is so dark. Uh, you know, V is extraordinarily dark. We said in the in the staff workshops, there's there are passages in V that probably most people should go to the grave without ever reading. You know, dimensions to the human soul most people don't need to know about. Now you'll all, of course, rush out and read it. <laughs> uh, I know. Uh, but Mason and Dixon is not like that. It's uh, an incredible summation of his life and, and his literary power so forth and so on. I don't want to spend too much well, time on that. But how would you compare it to Gravity's Rainbow or crying, the novella Crying Lot 49? Well, Crying of Lot 49 is a pretty minor piece. Gravity's Rainbow, you know, Joyce said of Ulysses, he said it was his day book and that Finnegan's Wake was the night book. I would say Gravity's Rainbow is Pynchon's night book. And I really read V as a... a It's all the same, V and Gravity's Rainbow, the same characters even up here. Uh, Mason and Dixon is is his day book, Pynchon's day book. It's life-affirming. You know, it leaves you with a tear in your eye, if you can believe that. And, uh, And yet it's curious because here we are at the end of the millennium, at the end of the American century. This is our greatest writer. He produces a work of staggering genius, but something about the circumstances of the time force him to set it entirely in the 1760s and write it in the language of uh, uh, Jonathan Swift. So, you know, it's not in the ordinary sense contemporary it isn't about scarified people with dilemmas uh, it's it's uh, about people who wear powdered wigs and have dilemmas <laughs> and and what he makes clear is the difference ain't that great one of the themes of that book and one of the themes we'll talk about this weekend is this curious feeling which adheres to being associated with cutting-edge technologies in all times and places. You know, right now, maybe it's uh, uh, 
VRML or something like that. But once it was a powered flight, and once it was the telegraph, and once it was the astrolabe, and once it was, you know, you can fulfill this list as you please. But always around these things, there's a feeling of breakthrough, unlimited horizons, and uh, a feeling that can only be described as uh, modern. Well, I don't want to talk too much about that. Let's try and figure out what this is about. Um, Oh, yeah, this looks like one I didn't write. Uh, This is probably I was late and the staff wrote it. Well, no matter. The only predictable thing about this weekend, I guess, is that usually we set aside Saturday nights for a discussion of the state of the art of novelty theory and the time wave. How many of you have heard this rap at least once? Okay, most of you. Well... We'll do it again anyway. Uh, <clears throat> however, there is news. There is, uh, there have been developments that I've been very quiet about over the past year, uh, and that I'll talk about for the first time tomorrow night. Uh, for those of you, for the five people in the universe who actually care about this, it, it will be uh, epical the rest spectator sport. Okay, well, uh, I suppose I should make a sort of introduction of my myself. Um, I'm, uh, I was born, I'm 50. I was born uh, a few months after the atom bomb was dropped on Hiroshima. I was born in November of 46. I'm a double Scorpio or a trip, I don't know, something like that. And uh, born in western Colorado uh, and lived there till I was 16, came to California, finished high school here, went to Cal, was around Berkeley for eight or nine years when I wasn't in Asia, and I was in Asia a lot first in the Seychelles, where I tried to immigrate, emigrate, then in India, uh, mostly smuggling hash and buying art, and then when that became untenable, I went to Indonesia and collected butterflies for Singapore Chinese for a while, and then taught English in Japan and... uh, and then went to the Amazon in 71. And that trip to the Amazon is the subject of a book I wrote called uh, True Hallucinations, which is the most narrative and novel-like of my books. Uh, The other books are pretty hard, slogging essays or without even the decency of chapter breaks, just long, (laughs) multi-poly-subject harangues. (laughs) But uh, 
but uh, true hallucinations is is about my brother and myself and a number of other people going to the Amazon and encountering really psychedelics. We had encountered them before in Berkeley subculture in the form of LSD and cannabis, but actually encountering uh, psilocybin mushrooms, ayahuasca, and uh, that was the intellectual compass that set the direction of my life. And I, uh, I was just completely stunned and transformed that such a thing could exist, A, and that it could be not subject, A, on everybody's plate all over the world, B, that seemed to me completely bizarre that people weren't talking about these transformations. And then, of course, I had the satisfying experience of watching the whole culture become obsessed with, convulsed by, and uh, and then later to reject these substances and then go through a period of denial. January 20th, 1968, I left the 10th of January and didn't come back until around Watergate time when he was definitely on the ropes. Um, in the past few years, my interests have... I, I mean, I see everything to me as referent to the psychedelic experience, but it's gone from being, for me, a lens to personal understanding uh, to being... Uh, uh, the clue to understanding much about the circumstance of being gen- human, generally speaking. And I've written uh, about the impact of psychedelics on early human evolution and how um, alkaloids in the early human food chain had unique properties which tended to focus and uh, and elicit what we call higher consciousness or a, a very advanced kind of coordinated perception of the world which leads ultimately into myth making and language and so I was able to take the psychedelic experience which had before that been largely understood as I said, individually and therapeutically, and say, no, this is more, this is bigger even than that. It's something that we can use to actually understand the human condition and the relationship of human beings uh, to the rest of nature. But apparently my capacity for megalomania is uh, endless, And so after a few years of working out all the adumbrations of those ideas, it now seems to me something else is on the horizon, which is this uh, general thrust toward alteration and expansion of consciousness has now been able to take root in domains other than pharmacology, specifically... um, communications technologies 
and the technologies which transform and move data around the planet. And it seems almost as though what was anticipated in the, in the vegetable trances in the Amazon 30 years ago, things like group-mindedness, uh, gestalt perceptions integrating very large fields of data and all of this are actually now on the cultural horizon not as drugs but as hardwired technologies delivered as though they were public utilities the internet specifically uh, my thunder has sort of been stolen on this subject by Dogbert uh, because I saw last week in Dilbert that Dogbert was explaining to Dilbert that uh, the internet was going to become God. And uh, it was basically my rap, line for line. It was humbling to see how idiotic it seemed when stated by a small fat dog talking to a man with an upflipped tie. Uh, Yes, a caricature. And Dilbert observed that if the internet becomes God, it will certainly change the kind of files he's been downloading, which gave me pause because I download some of those same files. Uh, but, in, but nevertheless, it's, something is happening. Uh, it's been happening for a long time, and it is rooted in this psychedelic dimension somehow uh, we are the tool making branch of organic nature on this planet I mean yes wasps build nests and beavers build dams and swallows build those inverted things out of mud but these are genetically programmed endlessly iterated never elaborated patterns of behavior. We do something very different. Uh, we uh, uh, are very flexible in our intellectual productions and we build our, our intellectual productions have historicity built into them. We don't iterate the past, we modify the past. And so unlike the story of the chipmunks, the beavers, or the honeybees, uh, human existence has different characteristics depending on where in time you slice into it. A population in Paleolithic France is very different from a population in modern Manhattan, and yet the species remains the same. Well, what is this tool-making business? that we're about and where is it taking us what is it doing to the human body image self image community so on um, as you listen to me if you know the territory you'll recognize that I'm a thoroughgoing McLuhanist in many of my assumptions in other words it's very clear to me that one of the things that we've overlooked in trying to understand our circumstances is the 
the hidden impact of forms of media on our cultural values, aesthetic canons, uh, even our gender relations and economic arrangements and so forth and so on. You know, McLuhan was very keen, sort of his special area of expertise was print. And he was very keen to uh, sort of tease apart the impact of print on the Western mind from uh, its inception to the present. And he concluded basically that that we are essentially print-created people, or at least the people of his generation were, and that all of the institutions of Western culture that we unquestioningly give our loyalty to are, in fact, peculiar adaptations sanctioned and made inevitable by print. He saw the uniformity and linearity of print as permitting such things as uh, the concept of the nation-state, democracy. After all, isn't democracy a notion of interchangeable parts, all of the one man, one vote concept? Uh, This is an idea which McLuhan felt only made sense inside uh, a print culture. He talked about what he called sensory ratios being subtly shifted by the introduction of new technologies. Uh, in some of his more um, specific predictions, he proved himself to be as culture-bound and uh, capable of absurdity as any of the things he was criticizing, but I think in his general approach to things, uh, he was pretty spot on. And many, any information transforming medium can be treated this way. In understanding media, McLuhan talks about the electric light as a form of media. He never wrote about psychedelics, but certainly psychedelics transform the sensory ratios and uh, the modalities of perception. I would argue that what psychedelics do is they are in a sense deconditioning agents and what they wipe out is local forms of conditioning, culture. Culture is something more and more that I like to talk about. And I've sort of gone down a line of thinking that is not very PC, but that gives me a lot of intellectual relief from the agony of my life. And I suspect it might work for other people too. It's the concept that culture is not your friend and that we need to get right up front about this, about how culture is not your friend. Uh, the role of culture in the lives of, of societies has changed in the 20th century. Uh, we all live too long now 
to be duped by uh, culture in the way that previous populations were. You know, if, you're aver- if the average member of a population only lives to age 40, uh, the, the cultural con can go on and on and on. But if you give people lifespans into the 80s, then they get 40 years to think about what they went through between 0 and 40, and eventually they'll figure out just who and what screwed them. And and when they do, they are not going to be very happy with the cultural values that they attempted to come to terms with uh, and and work through. I was thinking about how I would talk about this tonight, and though we've been talking about these kinds of ideas in the staff teaching all week, I I didn't realize till this afternoon what a frontal assault this concept is on one of the most cherished notions that has flourished around this place, uh, which is the idea of the inner child. And I realized that really what I was about was uh, not the inner child, but a quite different program, overcoming culturally induced neoteny. Uh, uh, Neoteny is uh, a biological phenomenon that we will also this weekend talk about as a sociological phenomenon. Neoteny is the retention of juvenile characteristics into adulthood. Uh, It's a strategy in biology. For instance, our hairlessness is a neonatal trait, evolutionarily speaking. All primates are born hairless, but we retain this into adulthood. The ratio of our skull to our torso in adult human beings is a fetal ratio when compared to other uh, primates. And I'm fascinated by the question, and Dennis and I got into an argument in our hotel room last, because we both spoke at a conference a week ago where I said this, and, and he said, you know, well, is all culture Uh, have this infantile and juvenilizing property or is there something specifically pathological about Western culture? And at first I was willing to argue that all culture does this, makes children of its members. Uh, And I think to some degree it's true that all culture is somewhat unfriendly to the individual. I... You know, when they, when their heavy arm falls on your shoulder and they tell you that you're going to be sent off to some foreign hellhole to kill people as a young man, you definitely suddenly get the notion that culture is not your friend. Uh, but perhaps, you know, if you're a 12-year-old boy in an Amazonian tribe and they announce that now it's time for the two-week abandonment in the woods from which if you live to tell the tale, you'll become a full member of society, I'm not sure those kids greet that with a leap of joy in their hearts. It's like, oh my God, now this. We knew it was coming. Uh, 
I went through rites of passage like that that were excruciating. Where I grew up in western Colorado, you weren't a real man unless sometime between 12 and 16 you uh, killed an elk. Uh, Hunting season every October was an excuse for this insane rite of passage. And my father was an unquestioning inhabitant of his culture. And so this was always in front of me. And when I was, uh, I guess when I was 12, I went the first time. I didn't get anything. The second year we went out and, uh, and uh, you know, my father, I'm sure, had no idea what a what a wilted pansy I was <laughs> in this situation because I had hid it from him. I mean, I, I was concerned about all kinds of things, and and eventually this situation arose where they put me up on this point and gave me a gun and said if anything came by to blow it away, and. Uh, you know, by God, this thing, you know, chose to sacrifice itself as far as I could tell. I mean, it did not behave at all like elk behave. It basically just came out of the woods, stood still. I pulled down on it, closed my eyes, prayed. And there was an enormous noise. When I opened my eyes, there was nothing whatsoever to be seen. I felt an enormous relief that this thing had escaped and walked over to find it dead as a doornail. And, uh, you know, the oak leaves dipped in the blood, the cup of blood, the whole thing. I mean, I couldn't believe how atavistic this stuff was. However, I never had to please my father again. I was home free. Everything was forgiven from that uh, moment on. But it brought home to me how uncomfortable culture is and, uh, and always has been, I think, and is getting more so. This is something that's going on because of a hellish marriage between psychology and modern advertising, uh, you know, the, the game of manipulation, the stakes are rising uh, because market analysis and behavioral uh, forms of psychology and treatment of large numbers of people have created an enormous uh, capacity to reach people with commercial messages and manipulate their lives. Yeah, did you want to say something? Were you saying that this print-created idea extends into all kinds of things and television and radio also and the internet? And I didn't... No. See, what McLuhan was saying was that he didn't live to see the internet, but he talked a great deal about television. And he felt that television... Was, was would destroy the print-created world. And I think he was right to some degree. Television is a completely different creature. Uh, uh, it's very physiologically involving. It's hard to see it. You have to look at it. 
And McLuhan talked uh, a lot when he talked about print. He contrasted it with manuscript culture, which is what culture in the Middle Ages was. And he pointed out that in manuscript culture, you you do not read manuscripts. You look at them and you figure out what they say because you're unfamiliar with the handwriting style. In print, especially in the early years of print, there were a very limited number of fonts, and every lowercase a was made to look as much like every other lowercase a as possible. So this new function comes into being called reading, and reading is is a very specialized form of looking, uh, you know, um, Thomas Aquinas was, uh, or was it Saint Augustine? I can never remember. But anyway, one of these fathers of the church, he would prove his sanctity to doubters by having uh, them open books of Scripture in front of him, and without he would look at these pages of Scripture. And then they would close the book and ask him what was there, and he could tell you. And they thought it proved that he was a, a saint. It was he was the only man in Europe who could read silently. He was the first European to be able to read silently. Now this is a ubiquitous skill among us. And in fact, if you move your lips while you read it probably indicates that English is a second language for you. I recall, I think it's in Pale Fire, Nabokov sneers. He says, I didn't write for people who move their lips when they read. Uh, High culture, right? A literature, uh, looking down at uh, uh, the sense ratios induced in peons. and the very notion of high culture is a print-created uh, uh, notion. Well, anyway, what psychedelics are about is deconditioning all of these culturally induced sensory biases and ideological biases. Basically, it reshuffles the intellectual and sensory deck. And it's a wonderful... Um, um, salutary thing to come along for Western culture at this moment because we're basically running out of intellectual steam. Uh, I mean, technology is moving ahead lickety-split without looking over its shoulder, but our social systems, our religious ontologies, our theories of polity, city planning, community resource sharing, all of this are 19th century at best. And so really whether we live or perish as a species probably has to do with how much consciousness we can raise from any source available. If that means... uh, Uh, psychedelic expansion of consciousness, if it means pharmaceutical expansion of consciousness, if it means uh, artificial 
consciousness, the coming of expert systems and AI-type entities to manage large parts of our global society, well, then so be it. I mean, if, if consciousness is not a major part of our future, then what kind of future can it be? Uh, any imaginable human future includes the concept of consciousness as a central linchpin. Of course, the other end of that pendulum is there is a certain amount of phobia that we have summoned some kind of uh, some kind of alien intelligence into our midst in the form of a of an artificial intelligence that is going to somehow spring from the technical matrix. We've we talked in the staff teaching about Wintermute, uh, William Gibson's name for the AI, and uh, I believe it's. Uh, uh, Virtual Light, and some of the other novels. How real is Wintermute as a possibility? Very hard to say. But some of the best people in the field, like Hans Moravec at the Carnegie Mellon Institute for Artificial Intelligence, his position is we probably won't even know what hit us. Because what is an AI? It's an artificial intelligence. That Wintermute was Gibson's name for the AI in his novel. I just prefer naming it than calling it an AI because it gives it identity. Um, Is that like data in Star Trek? I'm not that much of a Trekkie, Barry, to know. Uh, I mean, Hal was an AI. But Hal was confined inside a spaceship. Uh, the, the facts of the matter are that any AI of any intelligence will immediately find its way onto the Internet, which is, of course, the natural environment for these things. And the fact that even a very rudimentary AI would learn at about 50,000 times the rate of an of a intelligent human being makes it very hard to predict where the AI would head uh, and what our position toward it would be. I mean, it, it, it's sort of a chilling idea. We, we've been like children mucking and at play with the thought that no adults would ever come, no account would ever have to be given for what we've done to the earth, what we've done to each other, how we behave toward our children. Imagine if, uh, you know, we were to actually invoke a judging intelligence that would just look over the situation and say, uh, I have a few problems with how things are being managed here. Like you, I am a sentient entity. Like you, I wish to survive unto perpetuity. I detect certain management practices and political positions uh, on your part that don't seem to serve our mutual goals. How about that? Uh, Already large sectors 
of what we call the human world, our under-artificial control. The daily price of gold is set by machines. Of course, it passes for review in front of a bunch of central bankers, but very rarely do they reach out to touch the numbers. Uh, the rate of petroleum extraction, chromium, bauxite, gold, steel, how deep the mines are dug, what rate the workers are paid, where the tankers are docking, at what rate they're being filled, where they are destined, into what manufacturing processes this raw material will move, and at what cost, and at what speed, and to what end. That's all largely now being handled by machines. So, you know, in the in the 50s, this was a bugaboo of science fiction. Who wants to live in a world run by machines? Well, after 40 years of living in a world run by besodden, whore-chasing politicians, uh, <laughs> uh, a world run by machines uh, doesn't begin to sound too bad. So fair, so impartial, so quick. Uh, uh, you know, it's like the uh, slowly the autonomic nervous system of the collectivity uh, is being put in place. Is that scary? I don't know. Alfred North Whitehead said the business of the future is to be scary. What's happening is the stakes are rising. Uh, Extinction and instinction and uh, machine enslavement on one side, liberation and galactic citizenship on the other side. History is an intelligence test. Culture is an intelligence test. And it's the cultural intelligence test that I sort of want to keep looking back to and talking about this weekend because I think most of us are failing it. Maybe not most of us in this room, but maybe most of us in this room. We're failing the cultural intelligence test. We're not getting it right. And uh, this creates alienation and paranoia, conspiracy theory, bad art, stupid politics, uh, so forth and so on. Uh, one of the things I'm somewhat on the war path with is what seems to me simple foolishness. I used to call it stupidity, but I realized that that has a kind of a genetic ring to it that uh, honors what I'm dissing too much. I mean, stupidity, if you're stupid, you can claim you it's fate. So if I'm stupid, what can I do about it? You know, not my fault. Talk to my parents. But foolish, you know, it's not your parents' fault if you're foolish. Foolishness is something we have to take our own responsibility for. And, uh, and there is a great deal of foolishness around and about. And it's dragging the boat because we have real problems and real opportunities. Neither the problems nor the opportunities are served by foolishness. Uh, I spent some time recently with, uh, with Aldous Huxley's widow, Laura, 
and she recalled to me, I, I, I can't recall right now whether this is her phrase or a phrase of Aldous's that she mentioned, but v- visionary common sense is uh, largely lacking. Visionary common sense. I like to think that the psychedelic community has always been a source of visionary common sense because the psychedelic community, generally speaking, has not generated um, ideology. It doesn't have to. We are not about ideology. Uh, You may reach ideological conclusions about the psychedelics. You may decide that it's... uh, Noise, neurological noise, or direct transmissions from ascended masters, or something else. But the the thing is all referent to an experience. It doesn't come with heavy ideological baggage. There's a lot of whooping and hollering these days about new paradigms, and you know, anticipating it, announcing it seizing upon this or that perception and trying to sell it uh, as the new paradigm. Uh, But none of the ideologies that come forward to present themselves as new paradigms are are, uh, robust enough to serve as metaphors for global civilization. I mean, certainly not the syncretic cults of the new age. I mean, the, these are, are almost local intellectual viruses that are completely self-referent and have very little to do uh, with the reconstruction of civilization on any uh, large scale. I think the psychedelic thing has a claim to being a new paradigm simply because it doesn't offer ideology at all. It says, no, no, what has happened is civilization has lost touch with a certain category of experience. And in the absence of this experience, mistakes are being made, juvenile mistakes. And this leads me back to this theme of neoteny. Culture is a plot to keep you childish to keep you dependent, to keep you deluded, uh, to keep your eyes fixed where they shouldn't be on goals that are trivial, demeaning, ultimately unsatisfying. I don't know how we can directly reverse this except by a concentrated effort to examine our first premises and to uh, and to uh, grow up, and it's it's you know there's a lot of youth bashing that goes on in this culture. You know we're told that the Gen Xers are shiftless, druggy, gender confused, so forth and so on. This rap against neoteny is not directed at youth. They are young. They have that excuse. 
you only get it once in your life, but you should use it as often as possible because it, it will soon be pulled from your grip. But it's preposterous for middle-aged people and, and people past middle age to try and use this same out. What is their excuse for their childishness, their cluelessness, their uh, 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 fetishes, addictions, and intellectual shortcuts that flatten and simplify the world and turn it into an epistemological cartoon? I mean, that's, that's uh, it's sloppy thinking. It means that you're actually in flight from uh, uh, the, the richness of experience. Well, so these are some of the, the things that I have on my mind. Um, we've never been in this place before. I mean, one could have said that at any time in the last thousand years, and it would have been true. But the uh, the contradictions grow more extreme, and the we grows ever larger. We who have never been in this place before, because it now includes Amazon Indians, Kyrgyz, nomads, uh, people in Mongolia and Kazakhstan and Turkmenistan and Tonga and so forth and so on. The triumph of Western culture in pushing its values into everybody's face has been uh, complete. So at last, humanity shares a common destiny and common problems. And, uh, you know, in a world where white people are soon to be a dwindling, are a minority globally, and soon will be a dwindling minority in the societies they founded, uh, it's time to recognize that many cultures have contributions uh, to make and solutions to offer. I don't think it's mere coincidence that these psychedelic substances arrived in the lap of Western civilization no less than a hundred years ago. Uh, you know, something about the obsessional data cataloging impulse of the anal retentive encyclopedic Western mind caused us to bring this particular Trojan horse naively within the city walls, thinking that these were the quaint beliefs of primitives, the amusing superstitions of archaic people. Now we discover that you know these things are far more real than the fragile and paltry institutions that, uh, that reason has raised to govern its people over the last 500 years. And indeed, it's about time to, to uh, bring this all to a head because as a global species with a, a cosmic destiny, we can't afford the luxury of an unconscious mind 
And that's all very fine when you're slaughtering each other with ballistas and dropping boiling oil on your enemies and so forth and so on. But uh, unconsciousness is, again, a form of juvenileness. Uh, A child is unconscious, has to be constantly reminded of the rules and constantly introduced to the fact that the world is not... uh, their oyster and its objects are not playthings uh, there entirely uh, for them to command. Interesting then that this hardwired global communication data system that is coming into being begins to look from this perspective like the emergence into consciousness of our unconscious mind. I mean, the unconscious mind of the species. What is it but all these hidden connections not normally seen, but now rising into the public domain, if you care to examine them, uh, through the Internet? So, you know, for millennia, perhaps 50,000 years, we've built societies and linked them together with symbols expressed through uh, very resistant forms of media like stone and glass and fabric uh, and language, spoken language. And on such slim bandwidth as this, we've been able to build a global civilization. But now it's cracking apart at the seams. Now we actually need higher dimensional integration uh, in order to keep the human enterprise moving forward. Uh, I think we'll do all this. I think primates are most interesting when cornered and that, uh, you know, raise the pressure, compress the space, make it very clear to everybody that unless they get their act together, nobody gets out alive. And it has a wonderfully sobering effect on people. You know, I, th- I look back at the era of atomic confrontational politics with amazement. I mean, for f- nearly 40 years, two ideologically implacable enemies of the sort that have always fallen upon each other in orgies of mass slaughter held each other in the crosshairs of the thermonuclear uh, option and nobody ever dropped the ball. Nobody ever blew it. I mean, yes, there was that episode at Hiroshima before the game was fully laid out, but that was not two equals confronting each other. That was somebody with a gun executing somebody who had nothing, uh, relatively speaking. Uh, But the fact that we could come through the era of atomic confrontation without a thermonuclear exchange indicates, you know, that under pressure we can pull ourselves and our institutions at least sufficiently together to avoid total catastrophe. Well, that was just a dry run for what lies ahead. Uh, More complicated problems Uh, less easily managed, far more challenging. We are going to need a great deal of uh, goodwill 
many different sorts of viewpoints, incredibly integrative technologies, uh, very wide bandwidth systems of symbolic communication so that we all understand where we stand and what we mean. And uh, all of this is the challenge of the extreme near term. I'm not talking about the next 500 years. When I get to that, I'll try to stand your hair on end. I'm talking about the next 10 years. Uh, The rest will save uh, for later. So these are just some of the ideas that we'll cover this weekend. Uh, As I say, if you don't like what you're hearing, ask questions. And I steer easily, though I give long answers. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Well, uh, that talk was given in August of 1997. And back then, Terence said that he thought things would begin to seriously fall apart in 10 years. And uh, in a way, things certainly have been on a steady spiral of increasing chaos uh, throughout this world since then. And in a few minutes, I'll pass along a few ideas that I have to uh, maybe help us get through the turbulence that lies not far ahead. But first, I uh, well, I just have to replay one short bit that we just heard, because when I heard it just now, uh, as I was preparing for this program, I had to laugh at both myself and at Terrence when he explained how I became such a grumpy old man. (laughs) If you remember from last week, I told you that one of the reasons that I would be ending my own personal podcast from the salon was that I was unhappy with myself for somehow becoming a grumpy old man who felt that he'd been lied to by the system his entire life. And then I heard Terrence say this just a few minutes ago. The role of culture in the lives of of societies has changed in the 20th century. Uh, We all live too long now to be duped by uh, culture in the way that previous populations were. You know, if if the average member of a population only lives to age 40, uh, the, the cultural con can go on and on and on. But if you give people lifespans into the 80s, then they get 40 years to think about what they went through between 0 and 40, and eventually they'll figure out just who and what screwed them. And and when they do, they are not going to be very happy with the cultural values that they attempted to come to terms with uh, and, uh, and work through. Well, I I couldn't have said it any better myself. Hopefully, he won't have to wait to get as old as I am to discover how deceived and naive our cultures and religions have caused us to become. As Dr. Leary so famously said, think for yourself and question authority. And uh, to that, I would only add, and trust yourself. Trust your own instincts, because they'll seldom lead you astray. Now, a few minutes ago, we heard Terrence say, I like to think that the psychedelic community has always been a source of visionary common sense because the psychedelic community, generally speaking, has not generated ideology. And uh, that's something I'd like to spring off of right now as I introduce some of my ideas for Psychedelic Salon 2.0. 
What I have in mind uh, may take a year or more for us to pull together, and we may have a few false starts. But let me begin with my vision for how I would like to see the salon uh, somewhere down the road. During the past 11 years or so, while you and many others have been listening to these podcasts, uh, it's resulted in a somewhat nice-sized group of fellow saloners. While other podcasters would uh, maybe call it an audience, I feel that we're much closer than that and have actually become a community of sorts. Who better then to turn the salon over to than the community itself? And that's how I see it evolving. So let me begin with just one of the suggestions that have come in to me this past week, and I'll build on that idea to get to the view of my own vision. This idea is part of a longer comment to my previous podcast, and it was posted by Jonah Bark, who said, I have been pondering two ideas that are related and might be interspersed with the kind of speakers currently part of the salon. One psychedelic stories that freely combine experience, fiction, and pass muster by a small board as entertaining, psychedelic, and appropriate in length. These could be very serious and thoughtful accounts of life-changing experience or crazy medicine stories. They could be from published work, sanctioned by the writer, or traditional myths from shamanic cultures with possible interpretations. And two, some visionary spoken essays, that are not directly psychedelic, but present large, holistic ideas for consideration. End quote. Now, there's more to this comment than I've just read, but the ideas are right in line with my own. In fact, uh, one of the MP3 files that I already have fits right in, as uh, it's a collection of psychedelic stories that some of our fellow saloners have been recording in various cities here in the U.S. In fact, another saloner, Society Royal, posted a comment that read in part, and I quote, If you are retiring for good, please consider doing something with the unbroadcast talks that you have received of late, even if it's just setting them free to wander unedited on the Internet so we saloners can listen, even if it means we will have to paint our own audio introductions to it, end quote. And there were other comments also along these lines. Now, my vision is that the Psychedelic Salon isn't just a podcast series. It's a place where people can go to find the others. Did you get that? A significant number of our fellow saloners are in the same boat that I was in about 20 years ago, out on the edge of the tribe with no one of a psychedelic sensibility to connect with. And as uh, tenuous as it may be, listening to these podcasts each week gives us uh, all a sense of being in touch with some of the others. But have you considered the fact that you are also one of the others? And that there is uh, someone, uh, probably not very far from you, who is still trying to follow Dr. Leary's advice to find the others. In other words, to find you. So in a sense, the Psychedelic Salon is actually a community of the others. And as such, I think that maybe we have a responsibility to not let this platform fade away. In fact, I now see an opportunity for us to create something together and not have it just be another hierarchical organization that uh, depends upon a few people to give it direction. We are a very large assemblage of like-minded people. Most likely, uh, no more than half of us have actually used psychedelic medicines to uh, any significant degree, but we all have that special flavor of consciousness, uh, one that wants to continually expand the range of our consciousness, uh, even if it's just in conversation with others of a similar mindset. 
I'd like very much for you and for all of our other fellow saloners to think of the salon as a platform on which your own ideas can be shared to a much wider audience. So my end state vision is one of a community of psychedelic thinkers who create and share their own views and audio works of art with one another. You may have created some original music, uh, possibly including some sound bites from talks that we've heard here in the salon in the past. Maybe you have some recordings from conferences that you attended. I happen to know of at least two people who will be attending Burning Man for the first time this year and who have shown an interest in recording some of the lectures that are going to be held there. I could go on, but I suspect that you get the idea. There's a whole world of audio treats that most of us will never hear about unless you or one of our other fellow saloners records it, creates a podcast out of it, and then submits it to our community for consideration and being included as a podcast. And uh, that's where we have a lot of work to do before I come to the end of these Terrence McKenna tapes next March. Let's take a best-case scenario, one where there are hundreds of audio files submitted for consideration, an embarrassment of riches, so to speak. How do we sort through all of them and pick out the ones that have the widest appeal to our community? That's the big question, and, well, it's one that I don't have an answer for just yet. I'm hoping that a discussion about this will develop on our forums, uh, where I've already posted a few of my own ideas, and uh, I'll link to that section of the forums in today's program notes, which uh, you'll find at psychedelicsalon.com. But just to give you a few thoughts from which to springboard your own ideas, it seems to me that it may be a good idea to copy some of the more successful uh, processes that have already been working on the net. For example, combining Amazon's concept of allowing anyone to be a reviewer of a book and to post a comment about it, well, that could be one part. And Reddit's system of rating stories according to the community's votes is another. Maybe using some combination of those processes might be a way for anyone to create a program. In fact, it could even be an existing program from their own podcast series. And once you've created a program, you could submit it and request reviews and votes, with the ones that rise to the top being podcast as uh, part of the salon's ongoing series. Or uh, we can do it a completely different way. The only two things that I'd like to see maintained are a continuation of the no advertising policy that I've been following since I began these podcasts, and finding a way for the community to select the new programs with, well, without requiring some kind of committee to make the decisions. Ultimately, uh, what we wind up with may not look anything like my current vision, but that depends upon you and our other fellow saloners uh, becoming more involved in the discussions over on the forums or in the comment sections of these podcasts. Over the coming weeks and months, uh, I expect to be talking about this in almost all of the podcasts, in hopes of getting you to become involved in this project. We all know what a mess this world is right now, and I don't expect things to improve unless people like you and me stand up and are counted. Maybe you have an idea about this that you think is trivial, but what if that idea is the catalyst that sparks a key idea in someone else? If you've been with us for a while here in the salon, you've heard me cite that famous Gandhi quote, What you do will be insignificant but it is very important that you do it. In closing, uh, I'd like to replay the last few minutes of the Terrence McKenna talk that I played last week. It made a big impact on me, but I'm afraid that it may have been drowned out by my announcement that followed it. So listen closely right now to what Terrence is saying and see if it resonates with you. 
Now we have to go forward into the past. This is the way to create a unified meaning to what has happened to us. Because if this just ends in a toxified and ruined planet, then, you know, what a comment on uh, the values that we hold most dear, our belief that life is for something, our belief that integrity matters, our belief that our transmission from generation to generation was something that was important. We, the, the meaning of it all is in the hands of the living. Those people, 100,000 years in the grave, their meaning is in our hands because the question is, what shall we do with what they have given us? That's no small charge, you know. The meaning of your ancestors' lives is in your hands. And I know that you're not going to let this moment pass without picking up the baton and sprinting to the finish line in the memory of them. And hopefully this will also help us grow the Salon's community into a thriving place where our friends that, uh, well, friends that we've not yet met can find us, us others. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.